Hey, what's up, guys? This is Pastor Austin from Good Shepherd Church, and this is our podcast. So happy you're tuning in this week to stay caught up on what the Lord's doing in us and through us. I hope this content encourages you. I hope it challenges you, builds up your love for Jesus. Hope you enjoy the message. We love you. Hey, so we are continuing part two of this series that we introed last week where we are talking about this idea of able and how God is able. And, and part of the hope of what we're going to try and do here in this series is, is avoid this kind of bumper stick theology of Christ, maybe, where we can just say, oh, you know, God can handle that. God can do it. God can overcome. God, we just kind of slap that answer, that default response onto things. And we just go, yeah, I, okay, I know God could do this if he wanted to. I know God, if, if the Lord wills, you know, Lord will and the creek don't rise kind of thing, right? And, and what we want to consider, what, what I really want to pull us in to ponder today is that God is able to do far more abundantly all that we could ask or think all that we could dream, all, could, all that we could imagine, that God in his infinite wisdom, that he's so much larger, so much bigger, he, his thoughts aren't like our thoughts. He doesn't, he doesn't understand or comprehend things like we do. He's so much greater that he can achieve an outcome in any given situation that is far greater than we could possibly dream. And so I hope you're curious this morning. I hope there's just a sense of curiosity in you that, wait, okay, maybe, maybe there is a God Maybe there is someone who, who can do something that's far greater, far out, like out exceeding anything that I could imagine him doing. And, and I hope that you're curious, like, like I hope that life doesn't have you down enough right now that you've been so kind of wounded and become so jaded that you believe that it's just like, I don't even know if God can anymore. So just before I even start the message, I want to just, I want to incite some curiosity in you that this verse in Ephesians 3.20 speaks to this fact that God is able to do abundantly more, abundantly more. It's incredible. And so uh, we're going to, we have the verse up already. That's amazing. Um, remember I said last week, I was like, hey, let's try and memorize this. I don't expect you to have it memorized yet. Okay. Not trying to put too much pressure on anybody. So if you need to, maybe you've been practicing memorizing it, you can close your eyes and you can peek a little bit, you know, at the screen if you need to. So so let's read it together. But again, I, like, I'd love if we could just tuck the scripture in our heart and we could have this at the end of this series. We just knew it, okay? So now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory forever in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. Last week, what we opened up is this idea that, that no matter who you are, no matter what your past is, that God sees all things as restorable. He is a God of restoration. He longs to put things back together. And, and we learned last week that God does not spare us from suffering, that God actually longs to create and to do something to us, to refine us in a certain way in our suffering. And so he allows things to happen because, because what the enemy means for evil, God takes it and he uses it for his good. So as your story is formed in suffering, God takes something and he, he creates something in you that actually creates a weapon against darkness. And it's this awesome, sweet move that only God's got where it's like, yeah, you tried to, you tried this against me, but God's actually going to flip turn it and use it for his good, for his glory and for my good along the way as well. And, and we learned that how, how we keep focused in the middle of this suffering, how we keep our perspective up and how we understand that God is able to do abundantly more than all that we could ask or imagine is we keep our eyes focused on eternity because God has purchased a restored state for us that lasts for forever and ever and ever and ever. And, and, and I could take the next 40 minutes and just keep saying ever because it's going to last that long. 
And no matter what your afflictions, no matter what your trials, no matter what your suffering looks like in the here and now, as long as we can keep our eyes focused on what's ahead, we will see that our God is a God of restoration. He has, brought, he has bought me that ticket to go. And so this week, what I want to look at is a little bit different tone, a little different idea. And it's this idea of being vulnerable, being vulnerable. I can like hear the heavy swallows in some of your spirits right now. You're like, oh no, this sounds like zero fun. So I just, there are parts of this message that aren't as fun. There's some harsh reality in it, but I think, but, but what I want to do is I just kind of want to lay my cards on the table and just show you where we're going today. I want to show you the roadmap that I just kind of hope that we would all walk out of here grabbing today. And I just want us to see that God is able to do far more abundantly in our vulnerability than we could ever possibly imagine. And he, uh, and in our vulnerability, he desires to create in us a deep and intimate relationship with him and an ability to, and an ability to interact with the world in a profoundly wonderful and unique way. So that's what I want us to walk away with today. That God, in our vulnerability, as we step out and we be vulnerable, God's going to do something in, in that moment that's going to create a relationship with him that's, that's profound. And it's more abundantly close than we could ever imagine. And also in that vulnerability, when we're, when we're met by Jesus in that moment, what that's going to do is it's going to create something in us that's going to allow us to now interact with the world in a wonderfully profound and unique way. That's where we're going, okay? So to do that, what we're going to do, if you remember, we're going to be looking at stories in Genesis throughout this series. And what I hope to do is as we open up the book of Genesis and we look at this time where the world was crazy different, there's no cars, there's no Instagram, there's nothing that was getting us around, there was no voting for politicians, like none of that was happening in Genesis. And yet we can see that the truth that these characters glean in these stories, the, the issues that are inherently woven into their stories are the same ones that are woven into our stories. And so let's open up, if you have your Bible with you, Genesis chapter three is where we're gonna start today. And if you don't have your Bible with you, it's gonna be on the screen. But if you've noticed for the last six weeks now, I've said, if you have your Bible with you, let me just like make this subtle hint, a little less subtle this morning. It's all right to bring your Bible to church and read it. Okay, that's, that's what we're gonna do is we're gonna have a scripture and we're gonna read it. So if you have a Bible, uh, bring your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, man, would you talk? Like, I would buy you a Bible. I will buy you a Bible if you need a Bible. So just come talk to me if you don't have a Bible, okay? So Genesis chapter three is where we're going to be at. Genesis is the first book in the Bible. Here's what's inherently difficult in preaching. I'll just kind of let you know. Um, there are some of you in this room who've been a, who, who aren't Christians, who aren't believers. You don't believe what we're believing yet. You haven't spent any time in the scripture. And so I got to communicate to you in a way that helps you understand and unpack the truth that's in scripture. But at the same time, I've got I've to communicate to the people who have been believers and who have been in this book longer than I've been alive, right? But I'm not going to mention my age again this week because y'all almost like threw shoes at me the last time I did that. So, <laughs> but I got to try and find a way to talk to both and to hopefully just beg the Holy Spirit that he would enlighten something in the scripture today that would soak in you. That's, that's what we're after. So Genesis chapter three, I do want to give a little context for what's going on. Genesis chapter three, it comes after Genesis chapter two. It's shocking, really. I just am like, oh my gosh, it's profound. It comes right after Genesis chapter two. In Genesis chapter two, what we read is, is really this beautiful picture of God's creation. God has created everything and he just spoke and he said, let this be and it goes forth and, and you have the world and you have, all the, you have all the vegetation and all the life that's in the world, in the water, in the sky, on the, on the dirt and, and God has created Adam and Eve and he's created them and he's given, this, he's given them this charge. He says, go and, and cultivate 
cultivate, bring life into this world, like cultivate what is good, reflect my image out into the world and, and, and multiply. So, hey, like we're, we're not talking about this today, but part of the intimacy that existed in the Garden of Eden led to fruitful multiplication of humanity. Do you need more blues clues to like, to understand what I'm talking about today, right now? Um, it was God's idea. But again, I'm, I'm 29, so we're not gonna maybe talk about this right now because I don't want you all to revolt again. But in time, what we will talk about is how the church really does need to do a better job educating where sex comes from and whose idea it was all along. So again, not today, because I don't want any pitchforks thrown today, all right? But we're gonna just like, we're in maturity, in season. We'll talk about this when we need to, okay? Uh, but today, Genesis chapter three, I, I wanna draw your attention. It's not gonna be on the screen, but if you read the last line of Genesis chapter two, It reads like this. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Whoa, how's he going to talk about nakedness? This is church. It's church. How are you just going to talk about how people were naked? Well, it's just words that are in the Bible. Okay, so here's here's how we're going to do this. We're going to read the words in the Bible. And we're going to talk about the words in the Bible. And, And Adam and Eve were naked. And the author does something here where he ties their nakedness to the fact that they did not have shame. So I want to unpack a couple things real quick. The word here in Hebrew for naked literally means to be exposed or not to be exposed, to be nude, to have no clothes on. Is this awkward yet? And for anybody else, I mean, I'm preaching in front of my parents, you know, my in-laws. So they had no clothes on. They were bare and, and, and got it. Yeah, thank you. But but I want to, the reason I'm drawing some attention to this is because the word used here is the same word that shows up again in Job. If you were to look into it in a concordance and see how these words actually lay out, the word that's used here is the same way that Job describes how a baby comes into the world. I came into this world naked, not wearing anything. And, and the author does something important. He sets up a point that he's going to make in the next chapter. He includes in this sentence the, facts that the fact that their nakedness is not tied to shame because he's getting ready to set up a point in the next chapter. And so pay attention to it as we read Genesis chapter three, as we go through it, I'm going to kind of unpack a couple things as we go. And then what we're going to hopefully do is um, move along and talk about how vulnerability is going to be the greatest doorway that we have into intimacy with Jesus. Because the main conclusion in Genesis chapter two that you would draw is that, is that man and woman had an intimacy with each other that was beautiful. There was nothing between them. There was no relational strife. There was no, there was no insecurity. There was no shame. Their, their relationship together was perfect. And not only that, but their relationship together with the Lord was also perfect. God would walk with them and he, was, and he was intimate with them. He was so close with them. There was this proximity that was so near and they had access to him in this, in this awesome, awesome way. And so there was intimacy. And so let's go... Genesis chapter three, verse one says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Let's pause right here because if we're looking at how Genesis still applies to our life today, I just want to point out real quick that this line that the serpent used is alive and well, it's alive and well today. People still say, well, doesn't the Bible say? Doesn't the Bible, you know, the Bible says, You heard that before? And what's happening here is like the Bible, no, God did not say what the serpent's about to say. So here's here's the charge, know your Bible. 
We live in an age where you can access, you can get into the Bible in a way that, you almost, that is unprecedented in the rest of history. You can get on Google, you can jump on things, and you can find a lot. And there's some danger in that for sure, but the Bible is more readily accessible that you can research it as much as you want. You don't have to live in this way where people say to you, doesn't the Bible say? And you go, well, I don't know. Now, now let me like caveat that. You can say, I don't know if you don't know. And you should say, I don't know if you don't know what the Bible says, but you have all the tools you need to get into it, research it. Uh, look, at, look around this room. You see some people with gray hair on their head? The Bible says that's a crown of glory, all right? If you don't know what the Bible says, you find one of these people with less hair or more gray hair than you got and ask them what the Bible says. They've been doing this a while. Pay attention to them. Okay, so get off that point because it's not about my message really at all today, but it's worth making. We may eat of the fruit of the... Oh, did God actually say you shall not eat any tree in the garden? It's not what God said. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Okay, also not what God said. So we also gotta be careful that we don't add to scripture. In trying to follow God and trying to learn more about him, sometimes we can try and add our own thoughts into the Bible. We don't come to the Bible with our own thoughts and try and use it to prove our thoughts. We come to the Bible to say, hey, would you please expose the truth to me and let it get in me? So we don't add things to the Bible. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Bill Ackerman pointed this out in the men's retreat this week. A lot of times we hear this story and we think, oh, well, it's Eve's fault. Adam was with her. It was both their faults. They both jumped in. They both made the mistake. Bill, you did a great job this weekend, by the way. If you guys want to thank Bill, if you're around, thank him. He did an awesome job at the men's retreat this weekend for sure. So, um, okay, moving on. Adam was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I think it's possibly one of the most heartbreaking lines of all of scripture. They heard the Lord, they knew his presence, and they hid themselves. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to me, oh, geez, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. It's not a, not a good excuse. Not good. That's not good, Adam. Then the Lord God said, or um, the man said, the woman you gave, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So there's a few things that I want to draw out of this passage before we move on today. And, and that's that uh, sin will sow seeds in your life that will always reap a harvest of shame. So, so Adam and Eve felt ashamed once they realized what they'd done. 
says that their eyes were open. It doesn't mean they were walking around with their eyes closed the whole time. It means that like they were awakened to the reality of what they'd just done. They'd rebelled against the only rule that God had given them. They'd chosen, they saw his rule, they saw his order and they chose against it. And it's the same mistake that any single one of us would have made if we were in that same spot. We all have this desire to become more like God and we try and do it in our own wisdom. And so they sinned. And when that sin entered the world, they brought, it brought with it shame. Sin will always lead to shame in your life. And haven't we felt it? I mean, you don't have to raise your hand, but haven't you felt that feeling of, gosh, I'm better than that. Why did I make that mistake? I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have gone there. Uh, is this even me? Why did this happen? And we feel this feeling of shame. They were ashamed that they were naked. So again, awesome. Why do you keep coming back to this word naked? Because the word here for naked is different than the word that's used in Genesis chapter two. The word used in Genesis chapter two is arom. The word here in Genesis chapter three is arom. Awesome, that kind of sounds like a bit of a tomato-tomato situation. Are you sure it's a different word? It's used differently throughout scripture. In a concordance, if you look, the word arom that appears first, like I said, it appears back in Job when it's describing how a baby would enter this world, that they just literally are unclothed, they're bare. But this word is used when God is pronouncing his judgment as in we've been exposed. We are naked. He can see everything. He knows the mistakes we've made. We're bare. We are prone to his judgment. We've been exposed. We're vulnerable. Vulnerable. So sin produces shame every time. And we'll come back to this in just a little bit. But the other thing that I notice is that Adam and Eve try to cover themselves up. They make fig leaves. And don't you think that this is just something that they would have done? Uh, Adam and Eve use fig leaves. We use Instagram feeds. Come on, I'm telling you, like, we, we will put on some sort of mask. We'll try and manufacture something to cover up the parts of ourselves that we think are ugly, that we don't want people to see. And we will put this mask on that we've created and we'll create this facade that the rest of the world can see so they don't see our tender and hurting and ugly parts. We do the exact same thing. And you know who's really good at this? It's church people. How are you doing today? You know, mask on. Great. Oh, I'm great. Praise the Lord. Yeah, that's great. Great. I'm fine. I'm great. It's fine. House is like on fire over here. <laughs> Just lost our job. <sighs> like, you know, kids don't, the kids are in rebellion. They don't love me anymore. <sighs> like, I'm fine. Yeah, praise the Lord. Yeah, I don't, I don't look back there. No, it's just, it's good. It's my mask. Like, look, it's me. And on the internet, we love to do this, right? I mean, I don't know if you know this, but social media is not people going onto their device and going, you know, does, it, does my Instagram account, does it really reflect who I am as a person? It's not the question we're asking when we're posting on Instagram. You're taking 38 selfies of yourself going, which one of these makes me look the best right now, you know? And we try and create this persona. We try and create this identity online that we think people will like more because we're covering up the insecure and tender spots of our hearts because we are convinced if we let the world see what's really going on underneath, they won't love us. They won't like us. This is true. You're all looking at me like blank stares. We put on masks. We try and hide. We try and cover up the things we don't like. And we manufacture this life to try and get people to like us more, to try and get people to think of us a certain way. That's exactly what Adam and Eve did. They made their own covering. And the last thing that I notice in this passage of scripture is that uh, sin always leads to separation. Sin always leads to separation. 
And so the heartbreaking reality of what happens here in the garden is that there's now a separation between man and God, woman and God. There's this distance in that relationship that was never supposed to be there. The relationship was meant to be intimate, close, together, like where, people, where we were just open and exposed and there was no reason to feel shame or worry or anything. But now that sin has entered the world, it creates this distance. And not just between man and God, but between each other. Now we have this relational strife that enters in. Now because of our shame and our insecurities, we're not as close with the other people in our lives that we could be. And so sin, it creates this distance. Like, I don't know, have you ever, have you ever done something wrong to somebody? And then you see that person in the grocery store? My guess is that your default reaction isn't like, oh, I'm gonna go over here and talk to him. No, but if you've treated somebody poorly, if you know you've made a mistake, you're like, ooh, I'm good. Like, I got enough groceries today. Like, we'll just, we'll see you later. And you avoid that person. There's this distance. There's this separation that God did not design to be there. So what do we do? What do we do? Um, we're vulnerable. We've made mistakes We've been exposed. There's all these different things going on, but, but there's an interesting juxtaposition here in the covering that Adam and Eve made for themselves and the covering that God later provided for them. So check it out. God, God tries to, or man and, and woman, us, you and me, we try and make these masks. We try and hide behind these things that we've made. But the covering that God provides for them is an animal skin. It came at the cost of blood. He's the creator. He designs how it's supposed to work. And so he, he, pays, he pays for that sin through the, an animal's life and he provides the payment to cover them. Does it sound like anybody you know? Jesus, right? Can we get a Sunday school answer this morning out of some people? <laughs> Jesus becomes our covering that God provided. There was an, an, an inadequacy to the covering of fig leaves. God needed to provide an adequate covering for them one that paid for the cost of their sin, one that paid for the cost of their shame, and he provides the gift to cover them. And so um, I want to jump into actually John here in just a moment. So you can turn to John chapter four if you still have your Bible. There's gonna be a couple verses that are up on the screen. We're not gonna read through the whole story. Um, but but what, what do we do with our vulnerability? Because, because in all reality, I think what culture has created is it's, it's created this idea this, this, not just idea, but this reality that, that, man, if you can be vulnerable, if you can be transparent, if you can be authentic, you can use a lot of different words here, but culture celebrates those things. Man, that performance, it was just so brave. Like she was so vulnerable out there, like, and she just did her thing. And, and man, you know, I, I would much rather follow someone who's always real than someone who's always right. Like we love authenticity. We don't, we're not drawn to fake people. We're drawn to people who are just real Man, that person, they really like, they really like were transparent with me and I appreciated that. And it, it, it creates this close relationship. And, and what I want to say is that uh, transparency and authenticity, they are good things. Like I try and preach from a place of authenticity. Like I'm trying to be real. I'm in scriptures that I'm in all week. I'm not trying to just like manufacture, just use like different things just to be clever. Like I'm trying to be authentic. Like the, the messages I'm bringing as I'm preaching, they've gotten in my bones first before they get in any of yours. And so I'm trying to preach from this place of authenticity. I'm trying to be transparent, but, but the difference between trans, transparency and, and authenticity that is different than vulnerability is we are largely in control of our transparency and we're largely in, in control of how authentic we are. So, so let me show you something. Like, I can, I can, like transparency creates a window into me so you can see. You got that? Like it just, it creates a little window so you can see inside and see who I really am. I'm in control of how big that window is. 
So in a moment of transparency, I can say, oh, hey, I, I, I've been really struggling with anger recently. It doesn't let you know the, the rest of the story. If you were to blow that window out, I'm really struggling with anger because I'm really struggling with insufficiency in my workplace. I think I'm inadequate. And that's just making this low level aggression to me because I don't know why I can't achieve and I can't perform the way I want to. Right? So transparency creates this little window where, where man, if we're vulnerable, what vulnerability does is it relinquishes our control for how other people will react to our mistakes, our flaws, our ugly parts. So, so it's tempting in the world we live in to stay in these calculated lanes of, of transparency, these calculated lanes of authenticity, because I can pretend all day to be authentic with you, but unless you really know me, you don't really know the real me. And authenticity, this, like you being a really genuine person, you don't know who's being fake unless you really get to know them. So I'm in control again of how, how, what, how you perceive me, how the world perceives me. But until that moment where I say I'm going to be vulnerable, that's the moment where I'm going to open up so deeply to you. I'm going to reveal so much of who I am that I'm actually going to put the control of the outcome in this situation into your hands. Because intrinsically woven into the definition of vulnerability is the inerrant danger that could come from how people treat you. So vulnerability when you're actually vulnerable with somebody, it creates two doorways in front of you. And behind door number one is actually deeper shame, deeper pain, deeper hurts, less trust than there was before. Because if I'm going to be vulnerable with you in a moment, one of the options that you have, every single one of us have in that moment is, is to take that information and to be judgmental, to be harsh, to, to not treat us the way, to, we can actually use that information that you've given us to inflict greater harm, to speak words of greater hurt in a moment. And I see a lot of net, uh, <laughs> nods heading. I see a lot of heads nodding around the room right now because you feel this. You put yourself out there in a moment. You try to be open. You try to be vulnerable. You never, you trusted that person. You never thought the relationship would lead to this. You, you treated, well, I confided in you. I trusted you and you're breaking that. So behind door number one, absolutely, is greater hurt. It's greater pain. But praise God, there's a door number two because behind door number two is actually a deeper love than there ever was before. Because if I can lay myself exposed to somebody else and they can see all the flaws in me and they can see all the mistakes I've made and if they choose in that moment to still love me, now what that's done is it's taken every barrier and every obstacle that these secrets created and it tosses them out of the way and now we are closer than ever before. And the love that we have for each other, it's been tested now. It's been brought through the trials. It's been brought through the hard times. We, it's, it's, it's all been exposed. It's all out there. People can take it however they want it. And, and now if they choose love, if they choose to just embrace me how I am, then that's wonderful. And I experience a love that's deeper than ever before. But the reality is it's scary. It's scary to even put yourself out there and even create those two doors. So we would rather just kind of conceal and pretend that things aren't there. And we try and put this mask on. We try and put this life out there on, on Facebook. And we try and find value in the way that we look online. Because if people ever got to know the real us, they'd never treat us the same way. And so we try and avoid this moment of vulnerability. And, and we avoid it because, because people have reacted wrongly in the past. And so there's wounding, there's hurt there. And I get that. Uh, I think we, we avoid moments of vulnerability because, uh, because what it really boils down to is you have to be honest with yourself if you're going to be vulnerable. 
You got to really get down into those honest places of your heart that you don't like, and you got to bring those out. You got to be real about who you are. You got to be honest with you, and that's painful. The other thing is that um, we're afraid of how not just that one person will react, but we're afraid of how the world will react. Man, my friends would never if they knew. Man, my boss, he would, he would never. My coworkers, they would. Can you imagine if they knew? And so we avoid vulnerability altogether. So the question that we have to explore is what does Jesus do with our vulnerability? What does he do with our vulnerability? Because here's the reality. The person that you are most vulnerable with in this world is Christ. He knows everything already. He already knows everything. And you notice this about the story in Genesis? Like God's not asking those questions to Adam and Eve because he's trying to gain more knowledge. He's not asking because he doesn't know. He's asking because he wants them to come to the moment of being vulnerable. He wants them to come to this moment where they go, this is why we did what we did. He wants them to embrace it. So God knows everything. You are most vulnerable with God. He knows the thoughts, the motives, the desires, all the bad things that are in your heart, all the bad things you've ever done, all the things that you will do. He's aware of it all. You're most vulnerable with him. How does he treat us in that vulnerability? John chapter four. I think it's one of the most beautiful stories ever. You can flip there if you have it. What happens here is there's this woman who has an encounter with Jesus at a well. And, 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 you know, we can culturally understand some things about why is she at the well in the middle of the day? Well, she's probably filled with shame. All the women went to the well in the morning. So the only reason she would logically be there in the afternoon, in the middle of the day, is because she was ashamed to go with her peers. So Jesus begins interacting with this woman, which was culturally wrong. A Jewish person should have never been interacting with a Sumerian woman, and the man should have never been interacting with the woman alone. So there's all these reasons why this, why this encounter shouldn't happen. But God says, Jesus says in this moment, Hey, what's, hey, what's going on? And, and he says, listen, go get your wife or go get your, <laughs> go get your husband. It's hard up here. I'd right? be gracious. I was at a men's retreat all weekend. <laughs> Come on. None of you are up here preaching. <laughs> he says, go and get your husband. She says, oh, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, you're right. You have had five husbands and the one that you're with now is not your husband. So I love that Jesus doesn't fail to acknowledge the sinful pattern, the behavior that's broken in her life. He acknowledges it. He calls it forth. But then what does he meet it with? He reveals himself to her. He says, I am the Messiah that you're talking about. Who you say, who you're talking about, it's me. And he, and he meets her moments of just extreme vulnerability where her whole life, her whole, like her mail has been read in this moment. Jesus is like, girl, like you got so many things that are worse off than what you're saying right now. She goes, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. It's one of my favorite lines. It's like Jesus just told her everything about her history that's so dark, that was so concealed. And she goes, oh, you must be a prophet. And he's like, come on. Yes, I am. Okay, listen, I am the Messiah you've been talking about. That's me. And, and read this in, in John chapter four. I forget what verse. She has to go into the town after she's encountered Jesus. And she says, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. I find irony that she has to go and she has to proclaim to the town, come and see this man that I have found. Because this town would have known that she was the adulteress of the town. They would have known, oh, oh, another man, really. Tell me more about this other man. But she has to go and she, you know what this tells me? That her shame has been lifted. Her shame is gone. 
She's encountered some sort of love, some sort of grace that's wiped her shame away. And she goes and she can't help but go tell people about it. She says, come and see this man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? So God takes away our sin. He meets our moment of extreme vulnerability with radical grace and radical love. And so going on, um, verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Man, if that's just not last week's message, I don't know what is. What the enemy meant for evil was for her to stay ashamed, stay afraid, never be vulnerable, never, never have this moment of honesty, and, and she would have just stayed there for the rest of her life. What the enemy meant for evil, God took it, made a story out of it, and used it to advance his kingdom. That's last week's message. Going on to 42, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. All these people then come to faith because of the radical grace and love that this woman has encountered in Christ. And so she goes in this moment, she's totally exposed. She's totally laid bare. What does God do? He says, that sinful behavior, that's what you've done. That's not who you are. And he, he reaches out, he loves that woman. He shows her that he cares for her, that he's adopted her, that he's had a plan for her. And he says, and then she goes and she starts bringing all of her friends over because her shame has been lifted. The separation is gone. There's intimacy again with God. She doesn't have a mask anymore because Jesus ripped it off her face and said, I know who you are. Jesus knows who you are. There's no mask that you have made this morning that's gonna convince God that you're someone that you're not. He knows who you are. He knows the mistakes he's made and he's stepped in in and he's leaned in. I love that in our vulnerability, what does God do? He doesn't distance himself from us. He steps towards us. The whole narrative of scripture is God with us. And so what's created for you and for me is this, this relationship with the Lord where there's nothing between him and you. There's nothing. He knows about it all. And that didn't stop him from staying. It's like, what's the sin that you, oh, that? I want to know about that. Get in here. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. I'm pleased with you. I love you. He doesn't speak to what you've done. He, 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 you got to stop doing what you've done. You got to repent. You got to literally turn around. And I love that the enemy tries to use shame as something to paralyze us, to stop us, to keep us from moving. But what God does with shame is he produces this thing called guilt in us. And that guilt is what the Holy Spirit would call conviction. And what he does in that conviction is he invites us out of it. He says, let's go the other way. Let's not do that anymore. I'm going to empower you. I'm going to show you a different way to go. And we're going to step in this direction in this now relationship that's so intimate because there's no barriers in between it. God's known it all and he's moved towards you. And so here's two minutes left. What this creates in us is the desire for us to follow a God who loves us regardless of our past mistakes. And what a lot of Christians will settle for is they will settle for following somebody else who is intimate with Jesus and they'll never take the step to be vulnerable with him and follow them for himself. So you might come into this church and you might rely on my intimacy with Jesus. I've had some moments with the Lord this week. I'm fired up about this message, but my hope is not that you would come and rely on what I, but the time that I have spent with the Lord, you need to go spend time with the Lord. 
You need to get alone with him. You need to go. If any, you do anything out of this message, I hope you get alone in your house, in your room, in your closet with no lights on. I don't care where you go. And you cry out to Jesus and you say, can you just, can I just know you better? I want to know you deeper. Will you take me to the next level? Will you take me to the next step? You can't rely on somebody else's intimacy with the Lord. Your faith will never make it if you do. It's your relationship with God. The second thing that I want to conclude in this last minute, and then we're going to pray, is that what God desires to do in us and through us is to have us encounter his grace in such a deep and profound way that when people are vulnerable with us, when people bring things to our attention, mistakes they've made, things that they're ashamed of, we would meet them with the same radical grace that we were met with. So I don't care what the sin is. I don't care what the behavior is. I, I bet it's all in this room right now already. So we're not gonna be surprised by what sin there is, but we're gonna say, that's what you've done. That's not who you are. You're coming this way. Would you stand and we're gonna pray together. I just long to be a people where we're known for the way that we treat other people. And we're not gonna fail to confront sin. Jesus didn't fail to confront the sin. But if you have a relationship with somebody and you know something's going on, you should seek out greater vulnerability. Don't settle for calculated transparency. Say, no, what's, what's really going on? I know you. There's something else that's going on. We'd have this vulnerability that would lead to this intimacy, even in our own church, that would just be beautiful. That we would know each other. And that ultimately, that we would just have this deep, deep walk with the Lord. So would you bow your heads and pray? Jesus, we need you for this. I pray that every person in the room would consider just what their walk with you looks like. And if they're afraid, if they're scared of, of what might come, if they were to make themselves exposed and they'd be susceptible to some sort of judgment, would you just meet them with your profound love and your radical grace? Jesus, I pray that this church, we would get alone with you this week we would not just cultivate a relationship with you that depends on all of us being together, God, but would we, would we be intimate with you in a way that we know you as individuals? We spend time with you. Put that desire in our heart, Jesus. We can't manufacture it. We can't create it on our own. God, would you just incite something in us that longs to be deeper with you? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.